man, I love hearing you guys talk about Jesus. It's awesome. You have to hear me talk about him every week, but I love it when I get a chance to hear you all talk about him. Uh, and it's amazing what we've heard in those um, sermon bumper videos through this summer series. If you are new with us, we've been in a series this summer called POV or Point of View. And the idea is we're taking stories where people meet Jesus, they encounter him in some um, interesting way, and their point of view gets transformed, for better or for worse. But, but something about their encounter, Jesus shifts their thinking, their way of understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we're continuing in that, in that series today. And as we get started, I want to do just a little exercise of imagination today. So if you'll join with me. I would invite all of you just to close your eyes for a minute. Just close your eyes. Close your eyes, everybody. And imagine with me just get a picture of Jesus in your mind. Whatever picture comes to your mind first, hang on to that picture. Whatever image of Jesus comes to mind, hang on to that image. What does he look like? Keep your eyes closed. What does he look like? What's he wearing? What is his facial expression? Uh, What do you think... He's thinking when he looks at you in this image. What does Jesus look like in your imagination right now? Okay, awesome. Open your eyes. Hang on to that. Hang on to that thought. When people think about Jesus, they think about a lot of different things. And we heard even some of our church members talking to us about uh, how they understand Jesus. But if you go online and you do like a Google image search for pictures of Jesus— you'll find a wide variety of images of Jesus. In fact, nobody in the history of the world has inspired more art than Jesus. And so there's images of Jesus all throughout history since since the time he walked the earth. Up until today, people continue to create paintings and graphic images, and even AI is starting to design images of Jesus. And so there's lots of different things people see. And so I, I found a few pictures that I thought were interesting that we could look at to begin our message today. So let's look at this first picture. I call this picture Angry Jesus, okay? Here's Angry Jesus. Some people, when they picture Jesus, this is kind of what they picture. Jesus is looking at you. He's not very pleased, right? You're failing him. You're not living up to his standards. And so every time you think of Jesus, every time Jesus' picture comes in your mind, you think, oh, he's up Set at me. A lot of people have this kind of like self-consciousness, this, this low view of how Jesus thinks of them. But then there's kind of the opposite in picture number two. This is uh, approval Jesus or buddy Jesus, I like to call him. Okay, he's just like, all right, you know, like everything's great. You know, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. I don't care as long as you're having fun, as long as you're enjoying life. I'm your buddy. I'm your homeboy. Let's hang out. Keep it up. Right? Some people see Jesus as like, you know what? Jesus understands my lifestyle. He understands everything I've been through. So even if I don't really follow him, even if I don't really take his teaching seriously, he's okay with it all. He's Jesus. He's fine with it. We're buddies. Or how about, here's picture number three. This is feminine Jesus. A lot, a lot of art, I find, makes Jesus just look like a girl. You find this too? Like, it looks like he's wearing blush and lipstick in this picture. And, and so it feminizes Jesus and, and, and almost makes him, him, you know, like, here's the thing. A lot of men have a hard time worshiping a guy they could beat up. You know what I mean? Like, that's a tough thing for, for especially men to do. So a lot of pictures of Jesus, they, they give him this feminine look where he, I don't even know. I guess he does have a bit of a beard there, but man. Um, here's, here's the next picture. 
here's McDonald's Jesus, okay? Um, McDonald's, there were a lot more offensive ones I could have, I could have grabbed uh, if, on, along this line. But what we sometimes do with Jesus is we turn him into a corporate sponsor. Jesus becomes a sponsor of the cause that we're interested in. And so Jesus is, you know, I can, I can fight for cause and I can say, you know what, Jesus thinks the exact same way as me. Or people just use Jesus to pursue their own agenda, to push their own agenda, to fight their own fights. And of course, Jesus agrees with me because I'm right. So Jesus is on my team and I can use his name to further whatever agenda I have. Here's another image of Jesus. I don't know if you saw this pop up in the early 2000s. Uh, In 2001, a forensic anthropologist named Richard Nave created this model of a, a Galilean man from the first century. This was for a BBC documentary called Son of God. Now, he worked on the basis of a skull actually found in the region. And so he wasn't trying to claim this was actually Jesus, but what he was trying to do was say, this is what a first century Galilean man may have looked like. And so often, especially in our Western art portrayals of Jesus, we get like Swedish Jesus. You know, he's like white with long, blonde, curly hair. And it's like, that's not what a first century Galilean man would have looked like. He certainly wouldn't have looked Swedish. He would have been darker. He, he might not, because he was a carpenter, he probably didn't even really have long hair, at least while he was swinging a hammer. And so we've kind of created this fake version of Jesus. He may have looked more like this in reality. And then the last one, uh, here's Jonathan Rumi. If you've watched the Chosen series, this is kind of the latest um, portrayal of Jesus in Uh, in TV. And I think Jonathan's done a great job. If if you've watched that show, uh, he's been a really interesting actor when it comes to portraying Jesus. Anyways, when you look at these six images, uh, which one was closest to what was in your mind? Was Jesus angry at you? Was Jesus your buddy? Was Jesus kind of girly? Was Jesus, you know, sponsoring your event or your agenda? What What portrayal of Jesus came into your mind? I'm willing to guess that almost 100% of us, when we imagine Jesus, we imagined him as he was during his earthly ministry. During his time as a wandering uh, Galilean preacher, going around, doing his miracles, multiplying bread, preaching the gospel, telling people about the kingdom of God. And that's great. That's a wonderful image of Jesus. That's the dominant image that scripture gives us. However, today, today, like Jesus is alive today, he's no longer a wandering preacher around the region of Galilee. Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, then he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Jesus is no longer covered in dirt from a long walk in the wilderness. He's no longer subject to sunburns or mosquito bites. He's no longer in need of a bath or a good night's sleep. Jesus has transcended his earthly experience, and while still having a material body, he has entered into the fullness of what it means for him to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords over the whole universe. So if you or I were to see Jesus as he is today, we would see a much different version of Jesus than when he walked the earth so many years ago. And that's the image that I want to create for you in today's point of view. So we are going to the last book of the Bible. We are going to the book of Revelation. You can open up there or or get your device out and go to chapter 1 of Revelation. 
the uh, words will be on the screen behind me as well. But the book of Revelation, for many, represents a minefield of interpretation challenges. And I don't pretend to be immune. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. Um, but I think if we keep the main point of the book, the main focus, I think it does us a lot of good. Because the main point of the book of, the, of Revelation is Jesus. The main event in the book of Revelation is not the end of the world. The main event in the book of Revelation is Jesus. The central figure in the book of Revelation is not the beast or the antichrist or the dragon. The central figure in the book is Jesus. The main purpose of the book of Revelation is not to create end times hysteria and speculation. The main point of Revelation is to equip believers in every generation to stay faithful to Jesus when times get tough. So let me give you a little bit more context because I think it'll help as we get into our text. Revelation is written around in you know, the early 90s AD, so end of the first century. And at that time, the first century church, which is still in its infancy stages, was on a collision course with Rome. The emperor at the time was Emperor Domitian. He was somewhat insecure about himself and, and what he did was he created this emperor cult where there were special temples that everybody in the empire had to go to and they had to grab a pinch of incense and they had to throw it in the fire and they had to say out loud, Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, of course, Christians had a hard time with this because the earliest statement of faith for Christians was Jesus is Lord. So you can't proclaim Caesar as Lord and proclaim Jesus as Lord. One of them only can be Lord. And so the Christians were like, we can't just say that because Jesus is Lord. And so they started to experience a growing intensity of persecution as they refused to worship the emperor. So we see this coming up. And John the Revelator, he receives this series of visions that he wrote in the book of Revelation. And he, he was given these instructions to write down what he saw. So this letter was delivered, delivered to seven real churches in um, the province of Asia. It was basically modern-day Turkey. These believers were struggling with staying loyal to Jesus under the pressure placed on them by Rome. And what the book does is it helps remind them and remind us that things are not always what they seem on the surface. Our senses, the way we see the world around us, what we interact with, with our five physical senses— that's not the whole story. There's more going on than we realize. There is a whole spiritual realm. There is a whole heavenly realm kind of behind the curtain of physical reality where lots is happening. And if we were only aware of what's going on behind the scenes, it would completely change how we interact with the world around us. So Revelation isn't just about what is going to happen in the future. Much of what we read in Revelation is about what is happening right now all around us in the unseen realities of the heavenly realm, which is meant to empower and strengthen and encourage disciples of Jesus to remain faithful to him when times get tough. So right in front of you, Caesar might seem really big and really scary and really powerful. It might seem like there's no hope. It might seem like everything is a struggle. It might seem like things are just going to go downhill from here. But that's just what we see around us. And that's why Paul encouraged us. He said, we live by faith, not by sight. 
Because we know there is more going on than what we see around us. We know there is a risen Lord. We know that the victory is secured and that there are unseen realities in the heavenly realm going on around us right now. So the book of Revelation was originally called the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the word apocalypse in modern English has come to be uh, synonymous with this idea of the end of the world. But the meaning of the word apocalypse is not the end of the world. The meaning of the word, the word apocalypse is to unveil or to reveal something. So if you walk up to a closed door and you open the door to see what's beyond the door, you're experiencing an apocalypse because you're revealing what has been hidden. This week, Pastor Peter had his birthday. Everyone make sure when you see Pastor Peter, I think he's like 17. You see Pastor Peter, make sure you tell him happy birthday. But I'm sure Pastor Peter got some wonderful gifts. And while he was unwrapping the beautiful wrapping and opening the box to see what was inside the box, he was experiencing an apocalypse, an unveiling of that which was hidden. So the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is not a story about the end of the world. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is an unveiling of what's going behind the scenes where Jesus is enthroned right now. And the point is we need an apocalypse. We need a revelation, an unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes so that we can have faith to trust Jesus and stay loyal to him in our present moment. So let's take a look. Let's have an apocalypse today and go behind the scenes to see what John saw so many years ago. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. He writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So the seven churches that received this letter are named here. John also gives us some context for what's going on. He's, he's on Patmos. It was a prison colony, an island just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. He had been in prison there because of Jesus. He had been preaching Jesus. He had been saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The authorities didn't like it. They sent him to this prison colony where he received these visions. And this sets the scene for the need for what John is about to write. When we look back on history, we see that after this point, for Christians, for churches, things actually got worse for a season before they got better. Persecution got worse after this before it got better. Jesus did not promise those churches or our church that he would fix all of our problems. In fact, he promised us we would have problems. But he does promise to be with us. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. As we trust in Jesus and his power and his might, he will carry us through times of trial. Tribulation is a word used all through scripture and particularly in the book of Revelation to refer to problems and suffering. It's a feeling of being crushed between powerful forces that are outside of your control. The kingdom of this world is fighting back against the kingdom of God. And in the middle, Christians sometimes get caught in the crunch and we face tribulation times. In those times, Jesus doesn't promise to fix our problems, but he does promise to be with us 
when times get tough. And one of the things that will strengthen us and encourage us along the way is a revelation of who he truly is, which is what John received at the beginning of this letter. So John hears this voice behind him, he said, and then he turned around and we read this in verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance." So John hears a voice, then turns to look, and he sees this person. Now, is this the image, as you read the description, is this the image of Jesus you had in your mind at the beginning of my message today? Who John sees is no longer the humble, homeless, wandering preacher who washed people's feet and was spat on by Roman soldiers. He sees a resurrected, glorified, conquering, powerful figure who knocks you off your feet when he's in your presence. So, in addition to the book of Revelation being an apocalypse, being an unveiling, it's also written in a genre called apocalyptic literature. And we don't have time to go into all of what that means today, but it was a very common genre in those days, not common at all in our time. But what apocalyptic literature did was instead of just explaining everything it was trying to say, it would use all kinds of imagery and symbolism stacked upon symbols and images in order to convey meaning. And so this can make Revelation really hard to understand. The biggest key to understanding the book of Revelation is to recognize that all the images in Revelation can be found elsewhere in Scripture And when you find the places that these images are referencing back to, it'll help you understand what's going on in the moment you're trying to figure out. So as you look at all these images that John is seeing, when you go back to books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Genesis and Exodus and and Isaiah, you find all these references that help us understand what John is seeing here. So a great contemporary example, just by way of contrast here, Um, probably the closest thing to apocalyptic literature we have today is the modern political cartoon. So when you read a political cartoon and you see the images there, they're not just describing everything they're trying to say. They're they're creating symbols that represent uh, truths and realities. So a great example is if you're reading like an American political cartoon and you see a donkey and an elephant in the picture you know that it's not talking about a donkey and an elephant. You know that it's talking about the two big political parties in the States and what other antics they're getting around to in whatever issue that's going on. So that's kind of like what apocalyptic literature is doing. So when John sees Jesus, there's all kinds of imagery that helps describe who Jesus is and what he's doing in this moment. So let's go through it. He turns around and he sees someone like a son of man. At the surface level, the term son of man in the Bible just means a human. But this is actually referencing back to the term that Jesus most used, used most commonly for himself. But it begins in the story of Daniel. As Daniel sees a vision of a son of man. In chapter 7, verse 14, he describes him like this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel sees this human being that has been given glory and power and authority beyond any that has ever received it before, this glorified one who ruled over everything. So as we get this revelation, we might remember, hey, Caesar seems like he's in charge. He seems like he has all kinds of glory and authority and power. But when we look at this son of man, one who has given dominion that's everlasting, his kingdom will never be destroyed. Caesar's got nothing on this guy. Caesar's just a blip on the radar. He's a blip in the timeline of the kingdom of Christ as we get this revelation of the glory of this one that, Jesus, or that John sees. Then he describes him. He first notices his clothing. Clothing often represents someone's position or vocation. Obviously, I'm dressed like a pastor today, right? I don't know. In the Protestant church, we don't really have a uniform, so this is kind of how it goes. Uh, but, but if you see someone wearing like a long white coat with a stethoscope, immediately you think doctor, nurse, someone in the medical profession, right? Clothing often represents position or vocation. And so John sees his clothing. He sees him wear a robe with a golden sash across his chest. This is a priestly robe. This is a robe of someone who works as a mediator between God and humanity. Jesus is the great high priest, the great mediator between us and the Father, filling the gap between human and divine. He had white hair, again, another image borrowed from Daniel to describe God himself. So this is the Son of Man, this is a human being, but also God himself with wisdom and agelessness and majesty. His eyes were like blazing fire, penetrating and purifying. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Another image from the book of Daniel is this image, uh, this dream that had, there was a statue, of all kinds of different metals. The feet were made of two different kinds of material, which represent how this, how this kingdom was brittle and would break. And eventually this rock hit the feet and the whole statue collapsed. But Jesus' feet are burnished bronze, glowing in strength and power as they've been purified in fire. He will not be broken. He is reliable and he is firm. His voice was like water, refreshing and pure, drowning out other voices. It represents the life and nourishment of the Holy Spirit. And in his hand, there were seven stars. Now later in, in the opening here, we read that the seven stars represent the seven churches that this letter, or sorry, the angels that oversaw the seven churches that this letter is sent out to. But another image from this time is that... Um, in their cosmology at the time, they believed that there were only seven planets and that the movement of these planets dictated your fate. It's kind of, you know, first century horoscope stuff. As these planets moved, your fate was dictated and you didn't really have control over it. It was all in the stars. And so there's kind of this dual imagery that, you know, the stars that represent these angels, they're just, they're in Jesus' hand. Like he, he holds them in his hand, these, these great spiritual powers but also your fate is not dictated by the stars. The stars are just tiny little dots in the hand of Jesus who is all-powerful and he dictates all things and your fate is in the loving hands of your creator and savior. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things and in him all things 
hold together. Jesus is holding all things together in his hands. In his mouth is a sharp sword, indicating that his word is a weapon. And his face was like the sun. In all its brilliance, the beauty and majesty of Jesus' face can only be compared to the most amazing natural wonder in our solar system. The great priestly blessing in the Old Testament talked about the fact that the greatest experience we can have is that God's face would shine upon us. It said the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. All of these images combine to create this incredible picture of who Jesus is as he is today. Now, if you turned around and saw this figure, what would your reaction be? I mean, if you turned around and saw a grizzly bear behind you, what would your reaction be? Right? Most of us would just be paralyzed in fear. This is what happens to John in verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Makes sense. This is actually a standard response in the scripture when people encounter the presence of the living God. It's not necessarily something they do intentionally. Their knees just buckle and they fall on the ground in the presence of the glory and majesty of God. And John is no exception. But what happens next is the most amazing part because you and I, if we saw this figure standing behind us, we would think we were toast. We were dead. We've seen the glory of God. We cannot survive. But this is what we read at the end of verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. But, but he said, don't be afraid. I don't know if it was that easy. Many people are surprised to find that the most common command in the Bible is not to repent. The most common command in the Bible is not to have faith. The most common command in the Bible is not to obey. The most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of this glorious, powerful presence that you are standing with. Now, why? (laughs) Why shouldn't I be afraid? Because he hasn't come to harm me. He hasn't come to harm you. He's come to bless you. He could harm us. We could just explode in his presence. But he has chosen to come not to bring harm and death, but to take harm and death upon himself. To come again alive in our presence, defeat death on our behalf, and then come to us to bless us. Now listen, some people do have something to fear in the presence of Jesus. Caesar had something to fear in the presence of Jesus. The beast that we read about later in the book had something to fear in the presence of Jesus. The dragon that shows up later in the book had something to fear in the presence of Jesus. Unrepentant sinners who refused to listen to Jesus' voice had something to fear in the presence of Jesus. But you, dear Christian, you, child of God, have nothing to fear 
Nothing to fear. Not just in his presence, but ever. You have nothing to fear. Every generation will have their own list of things to fear. For John's generation, they feared the persecution that was ramping up under Rome. Today, there's a long list of things people are afraid of. Persecution in certain parts of the world. Even here, it's seeming to be bubbling up more and more. Violence and turmoil, wars and rumors of wars, climate disasters are increasing. Finances are tight as inflation soars. There's plenty of things that we could allow to paralyze us with fear. And fear is all rooted in one fear, and that is the fear of death. The fear of the darkness, of the void that comes after all is lost. But Jesus stands with John and says, listen, I I went into death. I conquered it. I've got the keys. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Because regardless of what death does to you, its power has been lost because on the other side is eternal life in the presence of this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So do not fear. Do not fear. Two points of view I want to send you home with this week. Number one is this. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. Not as a sponsor, but Jesus is with those who identify as a part of his body, his bride, the church. What John sees, which I didn't mention yet in in his vision, the first thing he saw was seven golden lampstands. And we learn that those seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that the letter was sent out to, but ultimately they represent the church as a whole. And every generation, including us, the people are the church, but also APA as a local church. Those lampstands represent us. And where was Jesus standing? Among the lampstands. He is with us. He is with us. He is still Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to reveal the goodness and love of God to us. He has come to establish his kingdom among us and to save us from our sins. And he is especially present when people are going through a hard time. Psalm 34, 18 reminds us, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is still with the church today, guiding us, correcting us, leading us, blessing us, and saying to us, do not be afraid. I know it can look scary, but do not be afraid. I am with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. We do not need to fear, for he is with us. Now, we still have questions. We still don't understand everything. We still don't know why people are suffering. We still don't know why some people's homes are burning down and other people's aren't. But we must hold on to what we do know, that he is with us and for us, and we don't need to be afraid. Jesus is with us. Second point of view I want to send you home with is this, and I've said it multiple times already, there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear. If only we could remember that. What is causing fear and anxiety in your heart today? It's different for everybody, I'm sure. But what is it for you today? Fear arises when we see something or someone or some circumstance that is big and powerful and outside of our control. We don't know what to do. It seems like it's going to take something from us. 
or kill something in our lives. We're, we're, we're scared of the death of the things that we love. We don't want the things we love to be, be damaged or taken away. We fear that loss. And so fear and anxiety begin to overwhelm us. Now, it's been a few years, but um, we used to read our kids a popular children's book called The Gruffalo. Has anybody read this book? Oh, go get it from the local library, even if you're 95. It's such a great little book. Uh, <laughs> it's a story of a little mouse who's walking through the forest, and he keeps getting harassed by all the wild beasts that are bigger than him and would like nothing more than to have a mouse for their lunch. And so the mouse actually makes up this story that he's on his way to meet a gruffalo for lunch. And they say, well, what's a gruffalo? And it's this poetic explanation of what this gruffalo is. He's big and he's strong and he's scary and he's powerful. And so the story of this gruffalo kind of intimidates these other creatures. And so they leave the mouse alone. But then one day, the mouse realizes to his own surprise that this beast of his imagination is real. He bumps into a gruffalo one day in the woods. And so he takes the gruffalo on a walk to meet all of those other creatures that kept harassing him. And as the creatures encountered the gruffalo, they ran away in terror. Whenever the mouse was with the gruffalo, he had nothing to fear. Now, if you have read the story, my analogy breaks down, but the point is this. We are with the scariest beast in the woods. When we are walking with Jesus, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing that comes to waylay us or to destroy us or harm us can do anything permanent when Jesus is with us. Because look at him. Who's going to mess with this guy? Who has the ability to mess with this guy? He has defeated death itself. He holds the keys. We have nothing to fear when we are in the presence of Jesus. And if we can just remember that, if we can just remember who's standing among his church, we would never fear again. And this is the revelation we need. No beast, no dragon, no antichrist, nothing can do anything to overcome what Jesus has done on our behalf and the eternal life he has bought with his own blood. He is with us. Friends, we need a revelation like John had. We need to see Jesus as he is. We need to have the curtain pulled aside for us to get an image of what Jesus is like and what he is doing now on our behalf. He's the great high priest interceding for us in the presence of God. He holds the stars themselves in his hand, orchestrating all things by his power and by his might. And he is with us, so there is nothing to fear. Amen? Amen? Do you believe that today? Do you believe he is with you and there is nothing to fear? <laughs> Praise God. Band, would you please come on back up as we move toward a time of closure in the service? What I want to do, our prayer team is going to come up. Please, please stand with me as the band gets ready and we're going to, we're going to respond with worship and prayer. What I want to do today is... is Spend a moment praying together, but our prayer team is actually going to come as well. And if you want individual prayer, they're here to minister to you. Come and share your fears with them. Come and share your trials and tribulations with them. They just want to join you hand in hand, lay hands on you and bless you, 
that, that God would work in your life. Might need to spread you guys out a little bit more. Maybe Pastor Rajesh, if you want to come join as well. Fantastic. Come and have them, have them pray over you. But also, in our seats today, I want us to respond to this vision of Jesus. As we've described, and maybe you have to open up your Bible and read through that, that passage again and get that image of Jesus in your mind. And, and picture yourself walking with that Jesus through your valley of sh- the shadow of death that he would be with you through it all and allow his presence to wipe away the fear and the anxiety that are in your heart. So let's just bow our heads together and pray through that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to be born, to live, to teach, to do miracles, to die on the cross and rise from the dead. But he has also ascended into heaven, into the place of glory and honor and authority and power. And God, I pray that in this moment, you would give us a revelation of Jesus as he is today. Among us, speaking to us, blessing us and declaring over us, do not be afraid. So God, I pray in Jesus' name that every fear represented in this room would wash away because of an unveiling and apocalypse of the risen Lord in our lives. Lord, we would be able to walk with confidence in who you are, unafraid, because Jesus is with us. So if you're here today and you're experiencing fear, would you just give that to God right now? Just name that fear right now. Some of you know what God has called you to do, but it just seems so scary and so big and you would give up so much. But in Jesus' name, I pray that the fear would dissipate and you would be flooded with faith. Some of you have a situation that is scary, not only emotionally, but even physically. And I pray in Jesus' name, the fear would dissipate and you would know that you are walking with the scariest creature in the wood in whatever situation you face. Some are dealing with a diagnosis yourself or a loved one and that's scary but you have to know Jesus is with you and he holds the keys of death in his hands and even if this disease takes you you will find yourself in the hands of the risen Lord blessed by him forever and ever and ever let fear dissipate under a revelation of the risen Lord. So Jesus, we ask you to come, reveal yourself to us. Give us a revelation of your glory so that we can walk unafraid. In your holy name we pray, amen.